folks this is christian haynes an editor at gamers with classes at www.gamerswithclasses.com and i'm joined by roger whitson hello nate schmidt hi there and don everhart hello i'm happy to introduce our first episode of library of babel a spin-off show of the gamers with glasses show tonight we will be covering frank herbert's 1965 classic Dune, as well as the David Lynch and Denis Villeneuve adaptations of the book. We'll dig into some of its social and historical context, what what it brought to the genre of science fiction, why directors can't stop trying to adapt it, what it has to do with climate change, ecology, etc., and much more. So why don't we start off by talking about, well, why we keep coming back to this book. And maybe, uh, Nate, you can get us started. Why Dune? Why do we read Dune? Why do you read Dune? Sure. I mean, well, why did I read it most recently? It's because there's a movie coming out. <laughs> and I wanted to see if the movie was going to screw anything up. Um, <laughs> or or <laughs> I know that is really the reason why I reread it, though. Um, I love doing that, though. I think that's great. Read right? The book like, that's yeah. half the fun of a movie adaptation is reading the book ahead of time and seeing if they got it wrong or not. And I have a suspicion based on conversations that we've had that Christian is going to totally have reservations about that attitude towards adaptation, but we'll see, we'll see if that comes up. Didn't we talk the other day a little bit about like revisionist adaptation and like, that's something that you're kind of really yeah let's with. get there we'll get there yeah yeah anyway I, um, I'm in, the Metroid episode. oh <laughs> right oh i'm on i think i'm on christian side on that yeah Maybe I, I'm, I i might be by the end of this i don't know i don't why why have you know fully formed opinions when you can just develop your opinions in public on a podcast um there you go <laughs> but <laughs> i think so dune came to me i mean the way a lot of sci-fi came to me and I hope that it's okay to tell like a little bit of, of a personal story, but you know, the, the way I grew up and the way I engaged with literature as I was growing up and with culture in general um, was a little bit, uh, you know, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of stuff that I was able to kind of watch or see or um, know about. Um, because there were a lot of really big capital R religious expectations about what did and didn't constitute sort of acceptable forms of media. And I do not know how Dune flew under the radar. And we can probably talk about that later too. I suspect it's because the gatekeepers in my life didn't know what it was. And so I was able to get away with it. But obviously I was able to sneak in like, you know, 
C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that's a nice gateway into the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien stuff. And Tolkien was kind of just on the verge of Catholic enough to be able to kind of get away with that. And then I kind of went looking in a pre-internet time, as I think a lot of people maybe did, even though this was obviously decades before both books came out. I went looking for something that scratched that similar kind of world building itch, that something that um, would would draw me in and immerse me into a place where I could escape, where I could feel a kind of big, wide open freedom. And the funny thing is that I think that when I first read Dune as a teenager, I kind of felt that. And rereading it now, I'm much more interested in the ways that it critiques that kind of desire in the first place, the ways that I think it critiques our expectations about how sci-fi is supposed to immerse us in, in something and take us to somewhere else. I think that um, especially in the way that Paul is this very intentional subversion of the kind of chosen one figure that we get like explicitly in Tolkien, Right. I, I would argue that in, in Tolkien, although the case could be made that that's more of a, a series of happenstances, but I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, um, I guess so the, the world building aspect of it, what I thought was the world building aspect of it is maybe now less interesting to me than the ways that it serves as a series of intersecting critiques that are also very much the product of their time. And I'm interested in the ways that the book, I think, you know, obviously has a kind of ecological critique of human relationships to the earth, but also I think has some implicit critiques of colonialism and this kind of thing, which are also flawed though. Which like like it's like an anti-colonialist orientalist book at the same time, and I'm not saying that's my favorite thing about it, but uh, <laughs> that does make it interesting to return to because it's such a product of its moment, and it's also been catapulted into what's supposed to be this sort of timeless space of fandom. And I think that's a really interesting thing to revisit and, and reimagine. I think, I think it's so interesting that like what you were talking about, Nate, in terms of like this question of like Paul as this critique of the chosen one theme, um, it definitely is there. I, I find it very fascinating though, that like it's the way that Herbert chose to package that critique was to have a setup over a long 500 page novel and then the actual consequences are in a much shorter second novel right, right. where and, and and it's very it's very possible and this is the way that it's been done for a while to just get the first part of the story and not get the second part of the story um and because because so much of that first novel is from the perspective of paul it seems to reinforce it even though he's also scared of what's going to happen, you get little hints of like, you know, there, this is not a good thing, but um, you know, 
it's it's like Herbert wants to take us through that journey. And I think there's something very, very, um, very <clears throat> interesting about that, but also very sort of like centrist. It centers that perspective for quite a while. What, how different would this novel have been if it was just always written from the perspective of the Fremen or, you know, like from the beginning. And so like, I just think that that's really, those two sides of it are interesting. I'm going to come back to the religious aspect here though, too. Right. Because there's a way in which like, I can imagine like, uh, you know, I read enough of your writing, Nate, to know some of, you know, your background and, uh, you know, I can imagine like, uh, you know, a super Christian kind of rigorous conservative household, like seeing Dune and reading the back, uh, and actually kind of being like, Oh, it's, it's like invested in spirituality and this, yeah, there's yeah. a way in which, you know, you could imagine that working and there's a way in which I think the novel does kind of work as a kind of conservative spiritual document, you know, but then on the other hand, you have this kind of really interesting syncretism, uh, where you're blending different religions, where, you know, there's clearly an investment in seeing some kind of, you know, unity among at least monotheistic religions, so Judaism and uh, Christianity and Islam in particular. Uh, you know, Herbert would talk about how he read, you know, hundreds of books while researching Dune. And, you know, obviously he was also, you know, he's working as a journalist before this, a sort of spun off these trips to the or you know organ dunes which were under threat um because of erosion among other things and uh so he read all this but he also read a ton of religious literature especially on islam to like prepare for this book so it, it makes a certain sense like you know i had a sort of religious household you know my mother was a catholic and then she was a pagan priestess but a story for another time uh but it, it never really was all that it was always loosey goosey as you can imagine and uh so, but on the other hand, it, Herbert's book, when I also encountered it, did have that quality of being like, okay, I was used to reading C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and stuff. And there was something that made sense there, right? There was something about the spiritual connection, but maybe more spiritual connection to the planet than anything like transcendent or up there in the heavens. And that always sort of fascinated me. You know, I mean, there is a Bible, right? There's the Orange Catholic Bible. And it's really interesting the ways that Herbert, I think without a hint of irony, like presents the assumption that present day monotheistic religions are based on something so essential to human being that they will maintain something of their present aspect, even thousands of years into the future when we're flying around in spaceships like that is the idea that it would change at all is not necessarily something that that some of the folks back in cornville uh would would super duper appreciate i think but yeah the the relatively conservative idea that religions monotheistic religions in particular are a central part of who people are and a, an inescapable part of what it means to be human to the degree that no matter what else changes, even when we've gotten so far in the future that guns are obsolete and we have to go back to using swords again, which is absolutely my favorite thing. 
swords are cooler than guns, guys. So we're going to make bring them back. <laughs> but like no matter how far in the future you go, some version of this monotheistic impulse um you know lives on i think this is something that's really and herbert would not like this i don't think but it's something that's not that far from the same kind of stuff they tell you in evangelical apologetics classes yeah there's i mean there's some kind of like the best and worst for me at least in the novel is like caught in the tension between the house of atreides as like a spiritual house as a house that has honor and spiritual value. And then her opponents, right. Who are clearly in some cases, like the heathens, not because the heathens here aren't like the ones who don't have the religion we do. They're the ones that like, don't have any need for any sort of spirituality, right. The Harkonnens, all they care about is money. But of course, how does he have to represent that then? Right. How does he have to represent like what it means to lack spirituality? Through like a you know super homophobic and you know imagery uh, that is also tied to obesity and all kinds of other things, right? And so it's like the best and worst, right? Like you get some of the worst aspects of like Herbert's writing, where it's maybe you know misogynistic at times, homophobic, but some of the best too, which is that there is some kind of critique of not just empire, but also something like intergalactic capitalism. I don't know. Which we do need to get ahead of. Like, we do need to start critiquing that now before, because we, we before jumped Elon Musk. a little bit late on the regular kind. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> I'm pretty sure Elon Musk already has Amazon delivering to like Saturn at this point, you know, him and Bezos are <laughs> setting up shop. Um, Roger, what about you? I have like two sort of strange intersections with this story i don't remember the first time i saw the david lynch um version film version of of dune i think it must have been one of the first films i saw as a kid growing up um it's it's something that's always been in my memory um i watched it you know i think they had it on television probably uh, while I was growing up too and I distinctly remember a six-hour version of the David Lynch film that was broadcast when the sci-fi channel started in the early 90s um, which like half of it was just background different like it was it was totally info dump like three hours of info dump and then the extended version of the Lynch uh, film and so like you know, I, I also remember, I, I think I mentioned this to you while we were reading it. I, 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 for some reason, like the way that Lynch did the voices while they were thinking, uh, the whispers made me think that every person in this universe was like telepathic somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was, it was deeply kind of disturbing to me and on a number of levels. Um, but uh, so, so there was that part of it. There was also the part of like, um, and I don't, I guess this is because of the David Lynch film. My cousin, um, Hope, is obsessed with Dune. She has read all of the novels, including the bad ones, including the ones not by Frank Herbert, including the ones like, like all of the house, everything. So she like knows everything and has wanted me to read this book my whole life. And I only 
I actually, she was diagnosed with breast cancer last, right before the pandemic. And so like the first time I read it was because of that kind of getting connected to that. Um, so that was like in 20, 2019, I guess. So um, that was the first time I actually read the novel. I had always sort of really, just really enjoyed uh, this weird movie um, from David Lynch. Um, and then I didn't even realize that Jodorowsky, the, the great Spanish director had, had, uh, created, well, he was in the seventies. He was, he was supposed to direct Dune. Um, but for a number of reasons, it never happened. Um, and there's actually a really great, uh, documentary out there called Jodorowsky's Dune. If you've not seen it, um, that's all about how, like all of his ideas apparently for this for this film became staples of 80s sci-fi. So one example of this apparently is the beginning scenes of Contact. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but the whole like universe thing, that was a that entire scene where it's like, I think it starts with her eye and then expands out. And then you just get the whole universe from the, from the sun to the earth, to the solar system, to the, I think it expands if I'm remembering correctly. That was the supposed to be the first scene of Jodorowsky's version of Dune, except with Arrakis and all of these other planets. All that cosmic awakening and awareness. Yeah. 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 Right up yeah. front. Yeah. So like, so it's just, it's fascinating. That whole out element is fascinating. The way in which this film and this story, I think um, there's another version of this where, you know, I'm uh, of course grew up with star wars um and only really recently realized how much george lucas took from dune um you know you have the bene Gesserit and the jedi you have both of these sort of elite kind of like warrior people that have these psychic powers you have the desert planet right with the and and, and in fact like i think tatooine has the two suns whereas like arrakis has the two moons um, you have, uh, you know, the empire, this sort of political struggle that's at the heart of both. Um, whereas I think Dune's more, of course, nuanced and, and interesting in a lot of ways. And so, uh, it's like, and, it's, and there's a weird swords are cooler than guns. Don't forget that. Swords are cooler than guns. <laughs> swords are way cooler than guns. <laughs> and like, and so like, I just think it's really fascinating that, you know, apart from the Lynch film, which that was like the first Lynch film that I had ever seen. I subsequently became a really big fan of Lynch later in my life. And now I'm a little more amb amb ambivalent about Lynch. I mean, it's never been my favorite, like it's not my favorite Lynch, but it was the first Lynch I ever saw. And um, not the best, it's not a bad, I don't think it's a bad adaptation of, of Dune, but I don't think it's, you know, really the best. Um, just the weirdness of it, I think, was just such a staple of my childhood. Um, and so, yeah. So, like, the book is something that, you know, like, coming back to it, it was so strange when I read the book how uh, how uh, familiar that story was to me, even though I'd never read it. So it, it was just kind of interesting. That's a really beautiful and personal story. And I also just love the fact that Roger's the person who's like, oh, Dune, 
that's a David Lynch movie. That's a really great David Lynch movie <laughs> that I like a lot. I'm glad. <laughs> and, and that was like how you got into it. I mean, but I genuinely am delighted by the fact that that's, uh, that's the case. Um, Cause I think that movie gets a fair amount of undeserved hate. Actually. I think it, there are parts of it that work for what it's trying to be, you know, but that's a really good story, Roger. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly whitewashing occurring, right? Like Sean Young is, is Chani, which is ridiculous. Oh, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm just saying that like from the, the things that it's normally panned for, or, or let's even say was panned for at the time like the internal monologues or the shields look dumb and, and, and that kind of stuff. I actually find certain elements of the kind of slap togetherness of it a little bit endearing. Well, the, the, the internal monologues reflect this cool thing, Roger, in, in you, you know, your younger self thinking is everyone in this story telepathic. Uh, and then of course they're actually being all of these, elements in the story of prophecy and of manipulation of others through, you know, careful, weird sub vocalization patterns and (laughs) and whatnot. Right. Uh, That, that was just immediately jumped into all of these people can talk to each other with their minds Uh, as the result of watching that Lynch version. I think there, there's something very cool and reflective that you picked up via Lynch about Herbert's book and about his writing uh, just with that early assessment slash confusion. Um, There's something there about the book and about the way that he writes. I find it fascinating that that is absolutely true. Thank you for pointing that out. I, I do find it, Don, I find it fascinating that this novel can somehow both be about these prophecies Right. On the one hand, like it seems like they believe in these on some level of these prophecies. But on the other, on the other hand, it's also about how prophecies are used to manipulate and position things politically. Right. Mm -hmm. Like and so somehow Herbert is able to balance both things at the same time. And it's just a really fascinating book and story for that reason, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the the sort of negative perspective on it would be that Lynch picked up all the bad habits from Herbert's prose um, (laughs) because, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think Herbert, you know, is sort of learning how to write a novel with Dune and his use of uh, sort of shifting perspectives is a little messy to say the least that kind of use of italics i think italics. Was amazing. It used a joke People that like think it, in italics italics yes. mean thinking everyone yes. thinks in italics when yes. you have an idea the letters go through your head at a 30 degree angle and that's exactly. how thinking that's yes. how narrating thoughts works well if you read <laughs> enough science fiction at an early age then yes that is yeah. what happens to your mind they have they have word balloons and comics right like that's yeah. the thing like I, and I thought balloons thought bubbles and there's a whole moment though that they just kind of stopped using word balloon or like or like cloud balloons for thoughts um and would just communicate that through uh the sequential storytelling itself and so like it was interesting there was like a total 
uh, debate about that within the comics oh, yeah. industry. Yeah, um, but I mean, also the positive sort of spin on this is that Herbert is really invested in thinking about communities, right? And thinking about like what kinds of things you have to share uh, to be part of a community, including what kinds of ideas. And so there's this way in which I, I like that, like everybody has telepathy thing because it is a little vague in Dune, right? There are moments where it seems like people do sort of have telepathy or if not telepathy, that at the very least, what it means to share a community means to think together. It means to like have some kind of shared yeah. consciousness. And there is, I'm sorry. I just wanted to underline your point. Christian. There is this, there's a scene uh, in the book where, um, where Jessica is being served. I can't remember her servant's name. What was her servant's name? Do you remember her Fremen servant on Arrakis? Anyway, she's being served by this person. And it's almost like this person has this kind of bizarre preternatural ability to sense when she needs something. And she's fascinated by this, like the, the Fremen as a group of people who may have this sort of very low level telepathic ability to just sense these kinds of base emotions and needs and be able to respond to them uh, instantly. So as a community. Right. It's uh it's shout out Mapes, by the way. We we can't we can't be a bunch yes, of nerds Mapes. in a nerd podcast and not I have thought, shout out Mapes. I thought Mapes was um but that's definitely the character the Roger's thinking about. That's oh. regardless of how he described it, that's what hundred percent the character Roger's thinking about. Well, but that that's relatively early in the story and isn't the uh Fremen servant once Jessica uh you know, has to move into the siege in the and the desert, though. I think that's a different character. Yeah, I mean, once she moves into the desert, that's a different character. But I think Mapes is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Roger, but doesn't Mapes have some kind of premonition of like bad things are like you're thinking about relatively early yeah. in the book, like bad mm. things are going to oh, happen. Okay, gotcha. To House mm-hmm. Atreides, now that you're here, mm-hmm. um, and then in fact, uh, bad things happen to her because. Paul catches the seeker, but then it catches her. And yeah, but it just sort of shows you, I think, going back to this question of world building, how I think community is such a big part of it um, for for Herbert um, that he's able to sort of point out these very banal moments as being sort of very indicative of the type of world that they're living in. Um, but what one thing I wanted to point out, by the way, with world building that's really fascinating to me in this novel is that there are no aliens. Like, there are no like aliens like there are in other science fiction stories. They're all kind of vaguely humanoid kind of kind of characters. Which I always found that fa- I didn't even think about it when I like I you know when I first saw it or read it or or anything. But most recently, you know, I kind of saw that and I was like, oh, that's very that's really interesting. Yeah, the, yeah, but everything is everyone is either human or or very pointedly like a has human ancestry of some kind and has since through membership in some house or guild or something like that may have you know left some of their humanity behind at some point. Um, but that also kind of goes with the the point about religion and Nate's point about examination of humanity in the future uh, that carries an interesting sci-fi element to it, right? You project humanity in the future, 
different types of humans might branch off and have different things about them or have different types of communities, depending on if they're bound to a planet or if they're more intergalactic. Um, and, and the Dune uses that shared root, even with that variety is interesting compared to a description of like, and you encounter these other intelligences out there in the universe uh, that don't come from the same place. Dune says, no, no, yeah. they're, they're coming from the same place, you, no matter how otherworldly they may be. There's, there's kind of a kind of sideways gesture to evolutionary biology and that, right? Like, yeah. and, and how those types of things occur. Go ahead, sorry. But it's actually, no, I was just going to say that as, as futurism, as human futurism, it's so optimistic. I mean, no, if you compare it to, because you're talking about aliens, right, Roger? I mean, the, the aliens in war of the worlds in, in HG Wells, you know, were, are, are, are explicitly in other writings, Wells envisioning his imagination of what humans will someday could someday evolve into just like you see with the, the Morlocks and the Eloy and the time machine. It's, it's another way of him thinking through like the consequences of evolutionary biology that were available to him in his time and saying, yeah, humans will eventually become maybe telepathic, just macrocephalic blobs of need and, and desire that's where humanity's headed from an evolutionary perspective. And so for Herbert to come along and say, actually, it's going to be like, you know, it's going to be people. It's going to be recognizable. Humans will stay human even once they can travel through space. And I think these are questions. I don't think this is incidental. I think that Herbert mm-hmm. brings this up on purpose because he has all these throwaway lines Right. Uh, about like, oh, why do mentats exist? Because people were intimidated by AI. Right. And so there's no AI now, you know, and that's just like a one sentence like bing, and, and, and he tosses these little things out there. But I really think that as a as a vision of human futurity, it's almost unduly optimistic how human he is. I, wants to keep people. I don't know. I, I, I want to push back on that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. It Here's is optimistic though. Yeah. So I, I it is optimistic because Drowned World by JG Ballard would come out in 1962, right? Which I think is a really interesting counterpoint. Drowned World is very invested in like evolutionary biology and climate change and yeah, yeah. In, a, in a very sort of early form. And it's you know, the like a lot of new wave British science fiction, it's super pessimistic. There's like you know, like one of the last phrases in the book is something like, you know, I was lost. And that's like kind of it, you know, he's drifting off. Uh, oh, I love Ballard for that. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Thing. No, there's no, it's Ballard, right? Like yeah. there's no mercy. Uh, but Herbert's <laughs> relatively optimistic. Oh, mercy's such a good description of yeah. Ballard. That's like his criticism too. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, this is true. But, you know, Herbert was American. He was a Republican, right? He did believe in progress. And he was very open about believing that like the relationship between we can come back to this that like humans and nature should be one of like humans making good use of nature he you know still had a sort of environmentalist critique but there was still that sort of attachment but there was a kind of like balance there like i'm thinking i'm like 
that moment that you were referencing about the fear of AI, right? This is the moment where he's getting tested uh, by the Bene Gesserit, uh, you know, and the, the great mother uh, who hasn't put the hand in the box. So what's in the box moment, you know, what's and box? what's in the box. Um, <laughs> and, and she says, why do you test for humans? He asks, and he goes, and she says, to set you free, free. Once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Thou shall not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind, Paul quoted. Right out of the Butlerian Jihad and the Orange Catholic Bible, she said. But what the OC Bible should have said is, thou shall not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. That's like such a weird blend of optimism and pessimism at the same time, right? That's like, you have to pass a test to be fully human. Mm. Like, which at its worst is like a kind of weird pessimistic eugenics uh, vibe, which is definitely also happening in this novel. Uh, By the person administering the test. uh, Yeah. The principal representative of eugenics in the story is the person with the Gamjavar and and the box administering that. The Bene Gesserit project. Yeah, she's trying to breed Paul, basically, right? Like Paul was supposed to have been bred in a very orderly fashion. And that's the concern. Paul wasn't supposed to be Paul at all. Paul was supposed to be a a daughter. Right. To Uh, that point. (laughs) Exactly. And so, but at the same time, right? Like there is this, like what Nate's getting at is that hope that humans can keep lasting and that there can be something good in that term humanity or something. That's hella optimistic too. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I don't think you've said anything that I really fundamentally disagree with there. I, no, no, I'm, you're wrong. <laughs> well, this is a podcast. Someone fine. is right and I, someone I, is wrong and Roger decides which. <laughs> Roger picks. <laughs> what do <are> you... <laughs> um, I don't really disagree with what you're saying. And I had that eugenic human non-human distinction kind of in the back of my mind that I as I was trying to think through like what Herbert's up to because that's obviously a disaster but I just what I'm thinking about is I think as you kind of pointed to Christian like the difference between pessimistic and optimistic futurisms and if I were to draw a spectrum of those I think by the end of Dune, which again, as Roger pointed us to, like the rest of these books, also things go way south in other, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, pretty rough ways. Um, but by the end of Dune, I think the vision we're still by and large given is a humanity that's still recognizable, that's still maintains things that we notice and think about and are are theoretically, according to what Herbert is assuming at the time, care about, you know, um, I I think there's a vision that we'd still be able to tell what humans could be thousands of years in the future. And um, as kind of a, a amateur hobbyist futurist myself, I have severe reservations about that. The, the weird, complicated thing about that to me, though, and which I think Christian was also pointing to, is that there is 
a a conservatism to that right yes and then yes. herbert uh, uh by locating this recognizable humanity in a eugenicist project from the bene uh Gesserit, um as as well as alluding to uh, previous massive conflicts, which the, the Valerian Jihad gets elaborated on here and there throughout the next five books, right? Um, as does that Bene Gesserit project, which is, kind of becomes one of the central themes by the sixth book. Uh, not to get too far off track and say, oh, let's talk about all six books and not just one. Okay, okay, I'll reel it in. Uh, but but there there is something in that where there is an assertion that it takes conservative forces of biological and cultural preservation to keep that recognizable humanity in place. And I think that there is something that happens as the Dune series goes on through the books where there are, it, it's, it's, it becomes that the series is more about a moment at which humanity becomes increasingly uh, transformed and perhaps less recognizable than they are in that first book. And, and they do this in uh, a, entwined process with the ecological transformation of Arrakis um, and the and the whole rest of the series. So it's almost like you, you get to Dune and yes, there is something optimistic in that thinking of sci-fi as a genre of, oh, humanity is recognizable still in the future. But then there is all of these bits, like you said, these bits sprinkled through the book of, wait, but here's everything that's had to happen culturally, technologically, for that recognizable humanity to still be here. And then isn't there something kind of alarming going on in the prophecy and in the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming of, uh, you know, the, the Messiah here, um, where that results in great transformation? And it, uh, is, it comes with massive galactic conflict. Mm. um and and violent horrible conflict as well uh and it's almost like the best that paul can do at a certain point is he can't avoid the the massive violence of the transformation the best he can do is try and mitigate some of the cresting wave of blood and destruction that it might have been right like speaking of conservatism that's almost like you know very conservative liberalism of like okay, right, like, we can't actually yeah. do better, but we can, like, mitigate some harm here. Like, mm -hmm. we aren't going to totally destroy everything. Mm -hmm. But by the way, destruction's absolutely inevitable. Right, right. This is where, I mean, I feel about Herbert the way I feel about, like, a poet like Yeats, or maybe even, like, Joseph Conrad, you know, as a novelist, that hmm. you can get frustrated with some of this conservatism, but if there wasn't that conservatism, you probably also wouldn't be interested in its book, in his book. Mm. It's not like accidental, right? Like what's interesting about his book comes in part from his conservatism, his desire to preserve certain kinds of traditions, to have certain mm -hmm. kinds of like community that can, you know, and that sort of drive the community that can also fuel a certain sorts of fundamentalism, including right-wing fundamental fundamentalisms. Um, like there's something about the way in which 
he, for example, represents the Atreides as these like bat, you know, this sort of pinnacle of honor. Yet he's still willing to show them fall. Because if mm. there's one conservative sort of like trope that's been going since at least the 1880s, it's this constant anxiety or fear of civilization falling apart, mm. right? And you know, what makes a really horrible sort of conservative gesture of that is to turn like a series of others, a series of like racial or ethnic others into like the representation of everything that could tear apart society. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Herbert is he's actually willing to say like, look, anything could tear apart society. It's not a racialized other. It's not the Fremen. The Fremen aren't going to necessarily tear apart society. They could, but it's also just as well that the emperor's tearing it apart or the Herkonnens, you know, um, there's this anxiety about the fragility of the civilization that I think is also part of what makes this novel so worth reading, I think still. Um, and I want to, I want to actually, I have more thoughts about that, but I actually want to maybe bring it to Don to talk to us about why he's still reading this novel. Oh, that's right. We're still doing the intro to the podcast, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. This is We're just the intro. We've got like five question. more hours. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. We have so much to say about Dune that this, this is, is a gonna six be this... book uh, series. We thought <laughs> we were going to do yeah. other sci-fi books. Nope, it's all, it, oops, all Dune. <laughs> we haven't even got to the paragraph by paragraph exegesis. <laughs> yeah, this, this podcast is going to be as long as the sci-fi series that they did um the, oh no like... i'm just i'm just gonna cut right there uh anyway before we talk about a certain sci-fi miniseries <laughs> <laughs> i think that talking about why we're still reading dune in 2021 is is a good continuing scaffolding architecture for it and maybe we'll even eventually get to christians uh for for me i had uh parents who were into science fiction and fantasy literature and so i got very into that and at some point they recommended that i read dune and i loved it and then i haunted certain used bookstores in tucson arizona to try and get the rest of the dune books piecemeal because it's you know and, and it used low low prices which is always a challenge if you're ever trying to assemble an actual sci-fi fantasy series because it's like oh the third book is definitely there and then maybe the fifth one shows up. You're never getting the fourth one for some reason. Where are all the copies of the fourth book? They just sit on people's shelves, but they, they sell the rest to Bookman's. Like, what, what is this? Incredibly intensely frustrating stuff uh, for a, a young, precocious science fiction reader. Uh, but being in the desert and growing up there and feeling a connection to it, um, I always really liked Arrakis. Uh, Mm. The Atreides are interesting. The Harkonnens are villainous villains as Herbert, you know, paints them, whatnot. Uh, The Emperor is kind of just presented as, as, uh, you know, having and wielding great power, but not necessarily doing so well or or with any uh, one's interest at heart. And, and a lot of the politics honestly could have been and continue, uh, in my opinion, to be to have more potential than actual interest in a lot of ways. A lot of the intrigue and the neo-feudalist 
stuff was not where my interest was located at the time. Um, even if I think now, okay, yeah, some of, of the contained critiques of, of capitalism or imperialism within them, you know, maybe now that's more interesting to me. But Arrakis was and continues to be the most interesting part of the book. The idea that you have a planet that could be otherwise than it is in terms of its climate and its geography, its cultures and its people. The natives of that planet, the Fremen, understand this incredibly well. They understand the vast wealth of their planet. They understand that because this is science fiction, it would actually be very easy to terraform Dune into a green, lush world were one so inclined to use one's wealth to do so. And that the wealth extracted from their planet is more than enough to affect this ecological transformation. But does it happen? No, because, well, all of that wealth is dependent on Arrakis being Arrakis and being the desert world that it is and producing the spice melange. And so you have what to me is and, and is and was probably the most fascinating character of the book, Leet, the judge of the change, an ostensible imperial uh, officer who's the planetary ecologist, which is such a weird title <laughs> to have. What a strange job description. I'm, I'm the chief ecologist for this planet. Uh, mm. but, but a fascinating shortcut into a character who is absolutely obsessed with saying and, and collaborating with the Fremen to the point where he becomes, you know, very close to Fremen uh, himself, that, okay, so we understand the score, we understand the situation, we understand that uh, these, you know, external occupying forces of Arrakis and Empire would never allow the planet to change. Fine. We'll do it ourselves. And we'll do it really slowly. We'll do a dewdrop by collected dewdrop in all of these unique places out in the deep desert. And then it'll just build momentum. And the more you build up, the more moisture you collect, the more desert plants you carefully situate inside of ecological niche spaces in rock and sand, the closer you can get to there being more water in the atmosphere and less desert. And you'll just do it bit by bit, whatever it takes to get there because that's the vision that you have and you have such an idea of the planet as this complete hydrological ecological system that you think that this is something that can be done and there's such wonderful possibility in that there's such fantastic attunement to the you know what the planet is and what it could be and the most magical scenes in the book for me are are the ones where uh, you know, post-fall of House Atreides, um, Paul and Jessica stumble into these Fremen places. And it's not that they're jungles hidden in caves or anything. They're just slightly more populated with all these desert plants that are incredibly familiar to me from my youth, right? They're like, oh, there's creosote here. That must, that means there's water. And I'm like, oh, I love creosote plants. Seriously, top top five plants right there. Creosote bushes are amazing. 
right? And, and the book is full of this and these really loving descriptions of desert ecology uh, that proved to be enormously consequential, if not in the first book. But by the time you're six books in, few things are uh, so important as, as the transformation of, of Arrakis and its ecology. I, I'm fascinated. So I have a weird provocation. Um, and I wonder if there's a parallel here or not. Um, but this kind of, there is a kind of beauty to this long-term ecological project. It's, it's very um, fascinating in terms of, you know, even the stuff that we're struggling with, with climate change, right? Like thinking about these, these problems that are not going to go away in our lifetime and, and the need to sort of like plan not only for the next few years, but for the next hundreds, thousands of years, right? Um, how different is that? Is, the, is there a parallel between that and the Bene Gesserit's eugenics kind of project there? I wonder mm-hmm. if there's something we can pull together because like, because like both are trying to steer life in a particular direction um, and for particular reasons. Um, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. I, I do think that's a really interesting parallel. Um, I, I, and I think the difference has to do with, hmm, in, partially in whose hands the project is. That's one thing. There, there is a significant difference between the Fremen um, and the Bene Gesserit in general, right? In terms of their motivations for wanting to, the world and life to be different um, than it is. But you're right that there is something very similar in the timescale and the implacability um, of, of both. Uh, and there's something very similar to it. And, and maybe it's something that also forms a very easy shared cultural basis because the Fremen are very susceptible as well to Bene Gesserit myth-making. Um, it's part of that whole protective mission uh, thing that plants the seeds of prophecy for the aristocratic Atreides to be able to go into uh, the Fremen community and, and be the prophet and be the Messiah. Um, that's also Bene Gesserit work at work in the Fremen. So I, I guess thinking about that as well, there might be some deliberate seeds from that eugenics project in the Fremen dream itself already given in the book. It isn't just that they're parallel, it's that that vision, that long-term thought from the Bene Gesserit informs uh, the ecological dream of Leet and the Fremen too. It's just that they're taking that vision of possibility and of having uh, a, a lush garden world of their own is, is the direction of one and the idea of you know, great cosmic transformation and um, full deterministic vision is the goal of the other. And when the second one leaks over into the first one, then you get all of the the Fremen warship um, and commando squads and and Fremen death squads uh, that Paul both actualizes, right? It's not that he doesn't actually wind up building from in death squads he does it's just the and this is that that weird thing of like 
He just keeps them from destroying the entire universe. Isn't that so great of him? But yeah, perhaps that's that's part of the from susceptibility to being so molded into these militaristic death commandos. I mean, I think that it's worth at least like noting to that Herbert's writing at a moment when cybernetics is starting to like boom in sort of mainstream intellectual uh, sort of circles. And what brought that to mind was Roger using the term steering, mm. you know, and, and the term cybernetics coming from that ancient Greek word for a steersman or somebody who steers a boat. And I'm just thinking about this really is a book about systems, right? And about how you steer a system and about how, how hard it is to steer a system, right? It's easy enough to steer a boat, or maybe actually it can be hard enough to steer a boat, but steering a system with all of its variables and all of its different sort of inputs and outputs, everything that can go into it, everything that can go into a planet's climate, into its soil composition, into the plants and the sort of hydrology. And then steering a bunch of planets through religion, which is what the Bene Gesserit are trying to do, right? Um, and so there's these intersecting and conflicting intense systems. And then what is Paul? Well, Paul is the dream of a master steersman, right? Paul is the dream of somebody who could unite all the systems and bring them all together. Uh, and even at like his time consciousness that he develops in the first book, where he sees all of these different pasts and futures, these future possibilities uh, that he can maybe steer and maybe can't steer, right? That he can maybe steer towards some of them and avoid others. But by the end of the book, he's still frightened that he's going to, to use the book's term, uh, you know, basically turn the Fremen into this massive jihad force, this massive you know, religious or not even maybe a religious political crusade that's going to just take the galaxy by storm. Um, and that's a part of what I like about this book and part of what I like about what Don, you're sort of getting at and Roger, you're getting at by way of Don is that like, this is an ecological book in at least two senses. This is an ecological book in that traditional sense of ecology that says, look, we live on planets and we're part of planets. And in order to have cultures at all, we have to have an inhabitable terrain. And that's not nothing, right? We can't take that for granted. Actually, we can take that for granted. And then you end up where we are today, right? Uh, with COP26 ending uh, and the deals that we have probably not doing much to stop us from having like a two degrees uh, warmed world or another two degrees warming in the world. Um, but then you add to that like a political ecology that spans planets, right? Where each planet in a lot of ways, as it is often in science fiction, as it certainly was in science fiction, even before Herbert was writing, each planet is also a different kind of, you know, not just ecology, but each planet's a different society, a different sort of set of political options that can be rubbed up against one another to see what kind of sparks fly. Um the Harkonnens that you see more of, like there's this kind of like venal capitalist pigs, basically, <laughs> in like the sort of worst way. The Atreides are this conservative Republican in a in the sort of non-party based way, but like Republican in the Jeffersonian ideal sort of way, uh, you know. And then you have the Fremen, who maybe are our best hope, but Paul's just as terrified of what it would mean to realize their potential as a social and political and cultural force. So. It's also just like a problem you have, I think, 
as an author. And I'm not going to say that like all fiction is metafiction, but like if you're an author who gets this kind of obsessive idea that you want to make a believable, full science fiction world that's also a quote unquote realistic extrapolation based on present day things. The need to be constantly managing competing systems as an author is going to be at the forefront of your mind as you are trying to create this kind of total work of art that's in need of a master steers person, right? Especially as it's kind of getting away from you. So I think there's a few different levels at which it's operating as, you know, in as, as a, a attempt to navigate complex systems of complexity that are too great to truly be captured. And I think to Herbert's credit, as much as he sometimes, and I, and I think rightfully gets criticized for that kind of like white savior narrative trope, he was also kind of messing with that trope, deconstructing it, criticizing it, however you want to put it, like from the very beginning of this novel, right? There's a, there's a sense that Paul is only the quote unquote Messiah by accident, right? There's an indication at one point uh, that it could have been Harkonnen's nephew, uh, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That he was just as likely to have been the Messiah. Uh, and it just happened to end up being Paul. Uh, and, you know, that symmetry also plays out in the fight between them. Um, and not only that, but like, there's no indication that that's a good thing, right? That there's anything good about having this. There's no indication that having somebody save you is a positive thing because what it means to be saved here is to be sort of conscripted into a political system that you might not want to be a part of, right? There's no sense, especially in the first book that the Fremen are better off because of Paul. I, and I, I think that there is something I am in the leap character that's so interesting about this. Um, and, and in some ways more interesting than some of the actual Fremen leadership who are perhaps more easily and rapidly bent to listening to Jessica and Paul and in that they welcome Paul very directly uh, after a, a, you know, a knife fight. Uh, in the in the desert, um, yeah, yeah, that's have how it goes. You gotta have <laughs> the knife fight. Well, like I said, I'm I'm from the desert, so I understand. You have a knife fight, and then you can go and you can hang out in the house, right? That's you know, that's basically like Tucson in a nutshell. Um, if if you go, you should brush up on your knife skills before. Uh, I thought that was universally known, but just for any listeners out there, now you know that's the etiquette uh, in in Copper Country. Um, Anyway, with Leet, I think that there is a something more subversive, right? Because Leet is an imperial representative, because Leet actually isn't a native of Arrakis, but becomes and, and has for decades before we meet the character, has, has become um, accepted into 
uh, Arrakis and has has steered uh, the Fremen project, right? Um, Leet is already the leader of that ecological project by the time that the Atreides come into the picture. But perhaps, you know, related to Elite status as an imperial bureaucrat, all of this is done very subtly and it's done in a subversive way. And the goal of the ecological project isn't let's make Arrakis a beautiful garden world so that we can be full citizens of the empire. The goal is the empire can't know about this. The Harkonnens can't know about this. In fact, the Atreides can't know about this because we just met them and we don't trust them for very good reasons. This project is our project. We want to transform Arrakis for us, for the, the natives of Arrakis. And that that is the project as it's being considered when Paul arrives. And Christian, then to your point of, well, are the Fremen better off because of Paul's arrival? The project has changed really drastically at the point in his arrival they do eventually yes you know spoilers for future books yes arrakis gets uh terraformed by by paul and paul's children and descendants um and and it does become uh a a very green green center of empire itself uh and that was not the plan that's not that's Mm. not what pre-atreides arrakis uh, and the Fremen political goals are their co-opted goals. He goes in and the way is paved by the Bene Gesserit for uh, him and Jessica to take uh, supreme religious and political power over this group of people. And then it, you know, then he takes their ecological project too. Mm-hmm. He takes, mm-hmm. he takes it all. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a great point. And I think that, you know, I, I also think you bringing up Leak gives us a good chance to maybe segue into a little movie talk mm-hmm. and get to the Villeneuve yeah, yeah. version, I right? Because I think, yeah, talk about yeah. That. I think one of the coolest things that Villeneuve did, right, is to change Leet's character a bit and do some new things. Mm. Uh, the with amount her, that I could enjoy uh, Villeneuve's version was directly proportional to being able to get Leet right as an interesting character, and I was so. <laughs> glad <laughs> that that happened it's it's really really good casting it's a really good piece of adaptation and i've got plenty of other parts of the movie where i'm just like it's not what i wanted but in getting lead right uh in that way there is actually a lot of of enjoyment um that i have of that adaptation i think in that one move i was like this is already something that I appreciate. Um, this this shows that there's at least some ambition and understanding of uh, emphasizing a really interesting and important character. And it was a great choice. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, the acting for that role is just great. Uh, that's Sharon Duncan Brewster uh, playing Leet, uh, just to sort of give that nod. I think the acting in the movie in general is mostly pretty good, though I'm not convinced Timothy Chalamet is a very good actor uh, to this day. Uh, (laughs) And I really wish he had not 
been cast. Uh, although I have mm. grown to very much like Zendaya um, in the various movies I've seen her in, in fact, and shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but the elite thing, I, I think just that is such a character that you could easily write off in a film adaptation mm. and streamlining. And to not do that and to also have, I mean, a little bit of the chutzpah, the guts, whatever you want to call it, to not just quote unquote gender swap the character, but to really make her a kind of force and decisive force within it and to make some decisions to tweak the plot in such a way where she's not just getting kind of pushed around or she's not just a tool of the empire, right? Mm-hmm. I think is a really mm-hmm. nice touch. Mm. And I like the way you put it, Dawn, of like, it's interesting that you were talking about it staying like true to the novel or like being a good sort of sort of representation of the novel. And it's of course, right when it's like betraying the novel at the same time. That's right. Different, right. And I right. Think it's, a, so it's a huge, huge departure in a lot of ways in terms of how the character is represented. I think Duncan Brewster brings a lot to the character that's not on, on the pages of the novel um, in, in terms of uh, the hostility with which uh, Leet is played in the Villeneuve version. It's, it's more distanced um in in herbert right it, this is someone this is a bureaucrat with something to hide and uh, a very capable one at just sort of smoke screening everything and there's a lot of italics about like not being able to figure lead out or figure out whose side leads on and whatever and in the movie uh some of that ambiguity is taken away least on the side of the fremen and lead is distrustful of of any uh, other representative. So, you know, happy the Harkonnens are gone. Who isn't? Distrustful of the Atreides. You should be. <laughs> and and, mm-hmm. and she's played that way. Um, and it is, a, you're right that it's a departure, but I think it is a great turn for the character. Mm-hmm. Oops, you're, you're muted. Maybe we can just talk about how you know, we felt about the movie in general, just in kind of like sort of, bl- I'll, I'll bluntly say, I really liked it a lot with some also major reservations, right? I would say, I would go so far as to say I loved it, but have major reservations at the same time, right? What are, your, what are your reservations? What are the reservations? Oh, I, I tend to agree <laughs> with some of the critics that say that uh, Villeneuve took the very easy way out in the way he represented the Fremen and that there is a kind of like, for all that the cast I think is much more diverse uh, in contrast to, you know, say Lynch's uh, version. At the same time, he also like mutes the conflict and the way in which that conflict is racialized, the way in which that was part of the book, but also part of how you would have to think through this and think Mm. about the connections to spirituality and just some of the, like the Islamic dimension. Trust me, I get not wanting to use the word jihad and I don't Mm. blame Villeneuve for not using that um, in the film, but at the same time, there was a weird way in which there was a kind of like emptying out of some of the distinction between the Fremen and the Atreides yeah. and the rest yeah. of the empire. There were, but on the other hand, then like the sandworms are magnificent. I love the kind of religious wow. awe, the sublime quality of the representation of the sandworms. I love the use of ornithopters in the film. I love the sort of visual identity of Arrakis, but also of the weird penal colony 
planet, uh, you know, in which like they're bathing in blood. Uh, the emperor's forces are bathing in blood before they go invade. I did like that. That was pretty I mean, metal. Yeah, I mean, that was also like, you know, they, they sort of turned Star Wars back on Dune a bit in that scene um, in interesting ways. There was definitely a Stormtrooper vibe going on that that is very different from the novel, right? Where they're dressed up, where the invading forces of the Empire that are just smuggled into the Harkonnens forces are dressed up like the Harkonnens so that they won't, like, be given away. Mm. Yeah, so what do I other folks... Like how do, yeah. I have a weird thing to say about it, and I don't know... If people will agree, but I felt that this there's something that was just so quiet about this film. Um, in the sense that you're just kind of gently, I felt like this with scenes often, I felt like this with the beginning of the film, you're just kind of gently led into this world, and it's just you're just there. They're not like Villeneuve isn't there to shock you, he like there are shocking things occurring. Uh, there are crazy, sublime moments to the to the film, but it's like there's this sense in which he has this kind of uh, ability to just say, like, this is the world. You're there. Experience the story. And you just kind of go with it. And I, I just I love that part of it. I felt I, just kind of led into it. I would agree with that on a lot of the basis of the filmmaking. I, I think that some of the, you know, the the large shots, the way that scenes mm-hmm. are introduced, the quiet set dressing um, where, you know, any detail is intricate detail carved into the back of sets, but not in terms of furnishing um, or in very heavily peopled scenes. There, there are not very many heavily peopled scenes unless mm-hmm. it's meant to be a whole crowd represented as a crowd, as an impersonal crowd. So I, I, I see what you're saying from that perspective, but something that I really didn't like about it, and which I think is in both literal and symbolic and filmmaking technical opposition to the idea that it's a quiet film, is that the music and sound is heinously directive to a degree that I found very off-putting. I really despised it. Um, there, there is maybe one or two moments near the end of the movie post, uh, Harkonnen invasion and the fall of the house of, you know, Arrakis, most of which were related to being out in the desert with sandworms where I actually found, okay, now the swelling of, of this choral music is actually earned in, in the moment that it is, but very frequently leading up to it, the way that the music and sound was I thought incredibly overmixed, incredibly overdone, uh, at the expense of the dialogue in an incredibly dialogue heavy and political story mm-hmm. was awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you, sound you, was you, you're not a Hans Zimmer fan, though, generally speaking. <laughs> <laughs> How could you tell? <laughs> Roger is basically just like, you're not a Hans Zimmer's fan, which was his way of saying, basically everything you've just said is without value. Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm kind of indifferent to him. I'm not, you know, I think I, sometimes he's interesting, but not very, very I, often. There, he, there does are, he, ha- he does his thing. And there are movies where I think that a bombastic score 
where you deliberately mix down the sound of everything else so that the score has a massive dynamic range when it hits its highest, com- you know, when, when it finally gets up to the high dynamics and it's the loudest thing you've ever heard. There are movies where that is appropriate. And Dune could be one of those movies, but not when you do that every five minutes. Can I, can I just say that like you helped bring something like into focus for me, Don, which is one of the things that did niggle at me, perturb me in the movie is that I felt like there was almost like a dearth of dialogue. Like there a little bit, like there should have been a little more dialogue at points. And it's because to be honest, right? Like the way Villeneuve directs movies, I don't want to say characters are incidental for him because I think he's done some pretty great character work in a movie like Arrival, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a way in which you especially see this in you know, his Blade Runner. Uh, you know, there's he's much more interested in the set. right? Mm. He's much more interested in the setting and the, and the visual identity of this movie is amazing. It, oh, yeah. There's a way in which you could imagine a silent version of this film. And by silent, I mean having music but no dialogue that could potentially even be better. And it would have to make certain kinds of different choices about the material and maybe even also the music. Um, and I think Don probably you still wouldn't like it, but I could see it working, right? Which is interesting there, right? Like, Well, I, I could actually imagine a version of that that I would like very much because, and, and I had this thought and I, I think I expressed it to my partner in the moment, in the scene where Paul flies the ornithopter into the sandstorm, and you get these shots of this amazingly cool and, and well-designed piece of aircraft with its dragonfly wings and its jet engine all in this sandstorm going off. And yes, okay, it's also a little Mad Max Fury Road, but I love that scene in Fury Road too, so I don't mind seeing it again. Uh, and the music kicks in for that, and there aren't any people in the scene. Uh, it's just this this CG device flying through this CG sandstorm and the music is totally there and it's really in the pocket. And I love that scene. I thought that was aces. That was just Mm -hmm. a really fantastic scene. And Christian, in that moment, to your point, I was like, wow, Villeneuve sure loves a scene where there are no actors. Mm. Because it was great. It was such a good scene. (laughs) There isn't a person in it. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I do think, which is in a certain sense, right? There is like something wonderfully Herbertian, let's say, about that, right? <laughs> like there's something like wonderful, like this is a drama about a planet, right? And, and I think part of what maybe was difficult here is that you've got Villeneuve's sort of vision for this, which I think in a certain sense is also Herbert's vision, bucking up against the Hollywood star system in which, of course, there have to be actors, right? There have to be actors and they have to matter and there has to be a certain level of star power, which has been true for a while with Villeneuve's movies. And yeah, so I think there is a kind of like weird tension there. Mm. Nate, come into this conversation with all of your Nate being. (laughs) I mean, is there any other way in which it's possible for me to enter a conversation for better or worse? I think you never just watch a movie if it's a movie that's based on a book Mm. that you've read and care about. And so for me, the way I experienced those characters was inseparable from my thoughts and feelings and expectations about the characters in the book. And so it was to the degree that it's almost impossible for me 
to step back and think about whether these characters were represented with depth because I was caught hopelessly importing prosthetic depth onto them from my book experience. Like I know what Gurney Halleck does and it bugs me in the movie that he doesn't sing. Oh yeah. And I was excited to see what a Balisette was going to look like in this movie. And I didn't get it. And I didn't like that, but that doesn't change the fact that there's still a part of my head that in some sense, literally is just imagining that character singing and playing the instrument that I imagine in my head off screen, right. In some other part that, that I'm not looking at. So it's, really hard for me to kind of be a critical watcher of adaptations because there's so much slippage, right? There's so much that, that I even now can hardly remember like, wait, was that a scene I really liked from the movie? Or is that something that I'm remembering from the book? Mm. They, they all kind of bleed together, especially because I reread the book in preparation for the movie. Right then, um, which I think is a really wonderful experience because why should you experience just one form of media at a time if there's a cool way to do both, you know, at, at once? I think there's a beautiful sense of psychic displacement that comes from this in letting yourself go, releasing yourself into um not being too concerned about these kinds of expectations, but the music was really overbearing and rough. <laughs> it is funny. You kind of wonder. Point. <laughs> I, I remember thinking that too, Nate, where I was like also sort of waiting for Gurney Halleck to, you know, sort of start plucking the strings as it were. And that they didn't do it. Like there's some like mildly paranoid part of me. That's like the hands ever just have a line in his contract. There shall be no other music but mine. No music but mine. Roger, remind me, does Patrick Stewart sing in the Lynch version? He does, right? Yes, of course Patrick Stewart sings. Jesus. Well, then Patrick Stewart's a better Gurney Halleck than Josh Brolin. We settled. Oh, he is. I mean, that's hard. (laughs) I mean, it's Patrick Stewart. That was easy. Yeah. Yeah. I do not love that original film, but I will agree with that. Yeah. Um, And I think to the point of that we would not be the only people on the internet to have thoughts about Timothy Chalamet's presence or performance in this movie. This is Um, where having read the book helps because I can just like, he's such a flat actor for me that I'm just like imposing thoughts and emotions onto his. Exactly. Which is a nice ivory face. Yes. To be able to do, but I curls though, his curls are just so like beautiful. Like how do you just, not get lost in them because jason <laughs> momoa is on the same screen yeah that's okay how. yeah that's yeah that's, that's how that's and, and um, they enlarge they give you know bonus time to duncan idaho as a consequence speaking yeah. of the additional star power and how gravity of certain people might distort who which character is get which minutes to show off which yeah. of their yeah. you know skills from the book um also uh the number of you know not longtime Dune fans who rightly point out, oh, okay, got got these names. We got Paul Atreides, Baron Harkonnen, Gurney Halleck, Duncan Idaho. 
Duncan Idaho. Duncan Idaho. Okay, Duncan Idaho is going to crack open a cold one with the boat boys. Duncan Idaho is ready for a grand old time. Duncan Idaho yeah. is out there detasseling the corn. Um, it's pretty. Duncan Idaho. You know what Duncan Idaho did last weekend? He let three pigs loose in the high school gym and numbered them one, two, and four. Duncan Idaho. What a cut up Jason Momoa is. What a character. What I was going to say about Timothy Chalamet is I think he actually brings something out of Paul's character that was lost on teenage me who was interested in heroes and completely oblivious to the fact that there was anything remotely critical about Paul going on in the story. Mm -hmm. And to actually the fact that there is a kind of unlikability to Chalamet's Paul, I actually think tracks a little bit more with the Paul that I experience in the book as I kind of reread it in, in a different way and in a more critical way. Um, And I, that, that was a little bit hard to put my finger on while I was watching the movie, but after I'd seen the whole movie and thought about it, I thought, you know, there are a lot of parts, especially throughout the beginning of the book where Paul is incredibly annoying Right, we're, we're, we're the only thing that we know about Paul is that he's just instantly good at everything. Right, he grabs things out of the air. Wow, I can grab things out of the air. Um, you know, he's a Bene Gesserit and maybe a Mentat and maybe a Fremen and also a Duke. And, and like it, he, he's, he's too much. He's too much. And Frank Herbert is making him too much on purpose because he's going to dismantle that in various ways later on. Um, but he's a really insufferable special boy in in the beginning and i think that that's something that um chalamet embodies and i realized that that seems like absolutely like the meanest backhanded <laughs> that is a mean thing to say about it's somebody really really mean thing to say. Is, but, it, but I'm, it's not, I'm not saying that i'm i'm not saying that i think he's doing that because he's doing a bad job or because it's something natural to him as a person I'm right. saying he, that the, he's acting. He's I'm saying a character the, the way he acts that character, I yeah. think is actually spot on re- related to things about Paul, which when you're reading the book, don't actually come out of him until much later, but they can't right. do that yet because the movie is only half of the book. The, the one moment that I'm reminded of that uh, based on what you just said, Nate is the gum Jabbar scene where, um, uh, she uses the voice on him and he's like, you dare use the voice on me? And he seems like such a puny little little jerk, right? Like, it's just like, this is the reverend mother of the emperor, you ass. Like, come on. Like, like, like who <laughs> he, do you think he you does are, have authority? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. And the, I the think literal that... voice of authority. And he's like, <laughs> literally, what? You dare <laughs> do this to me? <laughs> But I think that really is acting. I mean, I really think that he's taken flat affect flack in a way that he hasn't necessarily deserved because I think he's playing a flat affected character because Mm -hmm. Paul himself is not what we want him to be. Because this is kind of the height. I mean, the, the book, 
I just keep thinking about this book and I keep thinking about Star Wars and I keep thinking about Joseph Campbell. And, and because we were talking about prophecies and this idea of the hero with the thousand faces and how that became this huge self-fulfilling prophecy in, in media, in fantasy and sci-fi media in particular, where like that was mostly based on garbage research, but that it, it was a compelling story to George Lucas and I think that we have expectations about Paul that are we learned from Luke Skywalker and that Paul isn't like supposed to subvert in, in really obvious ways. And I think I, that, that um, Timothy Chalamet is very, very different from Mark Hamill on purpose. Mm. And that's the last thing I'm going to say about Timothy Chalamet today. I, I will say that I will say that I got annoyed at all the stupid mice in the film. Like it's stupid like- what? Little little white mice. There's ever so often there'll be a shot. Oh look, look, it's another mouse. Oh the Muad'Dib. Oh right, Muad'Dib. the mice. Oh, no, Muad'Dib. <laughs> you know Here's another one. There is some preciousness in this film that's a little frustrating, and yeah. and where I really think Villeneuve is maybe muting some of the critiques of that savior quality of Paul uh in a way that herbert wasn't right there's a kind of like even the way in which zendaya is narrating uh his ascent as it were which is by the way is an interesting reversal right so one of the things that the film reverses is it has zendaya who uh plays um somebody help me because i'm blanking Johnny, Johnny. Johnny. Thank you. Shani. All three of us have you, Christian. <laughs> yes. It's good. My brain is riddled with holes at this point. Um, but, you know, she plays Johnny. But the reversal there is that it was the emperor's daughter who becomes Paul's wife that's actually doing the narrating in the novel. And I think that's a really interesting and cool reversal. But it also sort of lends itself to this quality of like, he's coming for me, right? Mm. Like, in of like the way in which she plays the role of kind of ushering in his, you know, messianism as a, you know, uh, I, I've heard talk about, and, and I think maybe I heard this from you first, Roger, that it seems like the next film is going to be maybe more centered on her, which I think will be could be really interesting as they really do center on her and decenter it from Paul. Mm-hmm. They could actually do mm-hmm. some really interesting things, but in the first part at the very least in this part one, since that's what we have, it, it, it did feel like there were a lot of really, really pretty pictures that I got to watch for two and a half hours or so. And they were very entrancing and I didn't want an exposition dump. But I wasn't, but I also didn't get the same dune that for me is climate fiction before there was climate fiction, uh, in at least in name, uh, was a really smart critique before a lot of other smart critiques of the way in which messianic figures have dominated fantasy fiction and science fiction and would come to dominate all of our media with this turn to sort of like these transmedia properties since the 2000s. And I didn't get any of that. And that was disappointing, but the pictures are pretty. And there's some charisma to some of the actors like Jason Momoa. Uh, and the 
you know, actress who played Jessica, Rebecca Ferguson, grew on me throughout the film, even though I think they cast too young of an actor um, because you're not allowed to cast a woman older than 40, I guess, in Hollywood these days. Did any of you uh, go see it in a theater at all? Hell no. Screw you, Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, no I way. Didn't. I didn't <laughs> either. Don't give me that theater as that cinema's church bullshit. I, I would love to see this in an IMAX at some point. Like but yeah, it, yeah, I didn't feel compelled. I, I, yeah, and in, in, HBO Max. Yeah, in 2025, like get back to me and I'll go. So I'll see it at my local theater, right? You know that one of those old cool ones that's still running. But no, don't give me. I don't want to go back to church actually. Like I <laughs> and and not bring it back. And start and, a and, podcast, right? And and my my local cinema also isn't serving delicious Indian food. That's coming from the delivery person who's going to bring it to me. While I'm going to sit and enjoy the movie. Like oh, I just there are so many reasons so not many. to. Ah oh, man, and they're not even the good reasons. Uh, I think we were talking roger was talking the other day about some better reasons to not be denis villeneuve about this cinema situation yeah. but yeah no i didn't go to the theater risk my health for um, dune dune <laughs> everybody should risk their health for dune i'm just saying <laughs> otherwise how will we get part two which has already been great much my my cousin went to see it in a 4D cinema. Have you guys been to a 4D cinema? That freaks me the At hell an amusement out. Man. I don't park. even know what that is. Like they do weird stuff like change like apparently according to her. I feel like it's crazy, but I guess I'm just old now. But like whenever it, they got to Arrakis, the, the the theater like raised the temperature a little bit. Like they did things like splash them with water whenever they like there was water or like there would be little ways in which it would try to bring out other senses. Please tell me the they film. had sand. Little sand. <laughs> you, your sand. <laughs> you walk out and you're Some just like, guy with a sand get into my just comes up. <laughs> I went Somebody to the 40. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the 40 theater and I'm still I taking went... showers to get the sand out of me. I went I went to the 4D theater and saw Finding Nemo and I could not breathe for anything. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. So maybe the note that we can end on is what if you're telling somebody else that they should read Dune, what do you tell them? If you're telling somebody who's not like the biggest sci-fi reader maybe, or who's like a sci-fi reader, but maybe would rather just read the next, I don't know, N.K. Jemisin or any number of other great authors who are coming up. And you're yeah, saying, hey, the, go the read N.K. Jemisin book will be better. That's what I tell Yeah, you. it's actually really good. I actually, so what, so I just wrote on this, but I would actually argue that Dune is a more interesting novel than the Broken Earth trilogy. And oh I've my on both. God, Christian, oh, you can't God. say Christian, this stuff at the right. end of the podcast. So the no, reason, you said I, wrapping the, up two minutes the short ago. Version, the short version, N.K. Jemisin really relies on a very easy messianic narrative and it drives me a little crazy. 
she, I mean, it might as well be Fellowship of the Rings, uh, you know, at a certain point with a whole lot of other great stuff, but it was, it's weirdly conservative, the narrative structure You're she con- relies on. You, okay, okay. I will say, Christian, that is a good point. However, I love the novels. The I've written on them three times for publication. Yeah. yeah. I um, love the Fellowship of the Rings. Yes, these are all great things. But what do you tell somebody? What do you tell somebody who should probably just be reading N.K. Jemison, as Nate pointed out? <laughs> well, it's not like you can only read one book in your life. Come on. Some people yeah. don't have time to read many books. Yeah, I don't know. I do most of my reading in the bathroom. Um, so I read pretty slow. Uh, and if I were to tell a person to take like, you know, the eight weeks or so of bathroom time that it took me to finish this book. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I've never heard of Dune as bathroom literature before. And I'm told <laughs> by the idea of reading it bit by bit in a very prescribed. <laughs> At the time, this is the it. Time. I, I've circumscribed the amount of time I'll spend on this book and it is limited to the amount of time I spend in the bathroom. Exactly. That's exactly. what Duolingo is for. But that's also <laughs> well, like the high, the high point of vegetarianism is mm. that your, your <laughs> diet is very fibrous. <laughs> If I, were, I, I, see lots I of time to read Dune. If I were to recommend this book, I would say <laughs> that um, there is a really, and I didn't even really get to talk about this so much um, tonight, in part because, like, uh, I'm, as is maybe obvious, I'm not at my most coherent uh, as we, as we near 11 p.m. on the East Coast. But um, I really think that this is a cool story of uh, sci-fi and uh, political intrigue that I think if people were, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, maybe a lot of people are still trying to figure out why they were captivated, why so many people were so captivated by Game of Thrones. Mm. When really, in a manner of speaking, very little happens over most of Game of Thrones, in my opinion, in terms of sort of what I expect from more kind of Tolkien-esque uh, fantasy. And, and Dune, I think the way that Herbert crafts a kind of a political world that I, I think he thinks it's more believable than it really is. Like, I, I don't think that the intention here is to, is to read it and go, wow, like all those political hijinks, those things could really happen because, wow, aren't governments just so corrupt? Like that, that's that's not the thing that's interesting to me, but I, I'm interested in the idea of a fiction that makes politics um, character-like entities that actually turns political groups, political communities into entities that move and shape the story as much as or more than individual characters. I don't know if that 
is really a convincing argument for a person who's not that, super interested. That's a good sell for me, but I'm a sociologist. <laughs> right, exactly. So I don't know, because I, I feel like maybe that's more a good sell for me than for, for anyone else. And I'm still explaining to my to myself why I, I reread it. But that is something I think is really fascinating and and like groundbreaking. I'll say it, groundbreaking uh, uh, about the about this book. Uh, that I have not seen happen a whole lot in other kinds of sci-fi I've read, and definitely not in sci-fi that gets translated into giant blockbuster movies. Yeah, what about other folks? Well, I my favorite one of my favorite scenes in all of science fiction for me is probably the Gom Jabbar scene. Um, I take a lot, you know, I'm, people know I, I get into meditation sometimes. There's something about that scene about Paul understanding or not understanding what's going on. He has no idea. Right. Um, and being put into a, to a, a test in which he has to endure pain. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty gut-wrenching. Um, and I feel like I feel like this whole, you know, since I was a kid, the sort of fear is the mind killer thing has been kind of a mantra of mine because I've, I've struggled a lot with anxiety and fear of pain and, and other sorts of things. Um, and it's, it's one of the more sort of like, at least for me at least that I've read, um, reflective of that type of suffering and the struggle to work through it um, that I've seen in a lot of writing. Um, and it's always been a really powerful scene for me. Um, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about Paul as a character, but in that moment, I, when he's caught and he can't do anything but sort of persevere, there's something really powerful about that for me as somebody who's, who's, who's also dealt with a lot of chronic illness, a lot of uh, mental illness, you know, stuff like that. So I think it's pretty, pretty powerful. Oh. This is going to be terrifically unsurprising given what I've said in the last hour and a half. But if I was going to recommend Dune, uh, I would recommend Dune, the planet. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that the most interesting elements of the story, as, I, as I've already said, are about Arrakis. I think that Frank Herbert does a very interesting and tremendous job of making the planet and everything about the planet as a detailed whole ecological system, as we were saying, vivid and important. And in many ways, you know, important symbolically, important politically, important to the characters, crucially important to the movement of the plot. So many things in the plot only move because of the shape of the desert and the necessity of uh, how characters have to move through the desert, how they're impacted by being in the desert. All of those aspects of it are just wonderfully realized in the book. And so for people who are are interested in uh, that kind of setting, not, and I, I don't even know if world building is the right phrase that I, I would use for it, but 
it's a book where the setting is given so much emphasis and so much more importance than it often is given in sci-fi and fantasy, where it's often uh, shorthanded or given as a backdrop. Um, and and in, in Dune, it, it's central instead. Uh, and I love that about it. And I, I would hope that that would be of interest to people uh, who would want to, you know, who are considering reading the book. Um, and, and for that, you know, for that purpose or finding a book that does that, you could do a lot worse than Dune. Dune's excellent in that regard. Yeah, I'm not sure if I wouldn't just do what Dawn just did in the, in the same sort of thing. Uh, I, I think that Dune is a great book to be reading alongside books like N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, Kim Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson's recent novels, and all these other you know, climate fictions that really make us think about our relationship to the planet, to planets, to ecosystems. I guess the maybe the thing I would also, since in this theoretical sort of world in which we're pitching this book to our supposed friends um, who haven't read <laughs> it, because, you know, who wants those? Uh, in, in my, that, my friends in have that, Dune tattoos, so I, exactly. you know, I don't know who I'm selling this to. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, so in that theoretical world, if I had to pick something else, I, I, I think one of the things I would say is like, it's a really interesting book about trying to balance holding on to a cultural tradition while remaining open to change, right? It's a really interesting book about trying to navigate that sort of moment where history becomes interesting uh, while at the same time trying to call on the resources of your traditions, your heritage, uh, your the rituals that you have sort of identified with and trying to figure out how you blend those things, right? Where you come down on what you keep and what gets let go in order to adapt to circumstances that are beyond your control. And yeah, and I think we've had to do that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I think it's a good novel for that. But yeah, this was fun. And we will have more discussions of novels and films. But the next thing we're going to be discussing, uh, which our site editor, one of our site editors, uh, Ed Chang, is going to be leading us through is Larissa Lay's The Tiger Flu. And so if folks are interested in getting a head start on the next novel in our spinoff series, The Library of Babel, that's two Bs. That's three Bs. <laughs> that's, that's where I am at. <laughs> uh, uh, then that's what they should read. Larissa Lay's The Tiger Flu. Most of the time, I think we will probably just stick to doing one uh, novel or one work. But this was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Here's, it was a blast. <laughs>